You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep-voiced person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. We're coming to you from the headquarters of the Office of Cable TV, Film, Music, and Entertainment, which is also the historic headquarters of Black Entertainment Television, so it's an honor to be here. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to celebrate this thing called the Council. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me as the Council's voice on social media, at Council of DC. If you don't follow us already, please do so immediately. Here at the Council, our communications goal is to engage with residents in an informative, conversational, and sometimes even enjoyable way. You know if you follow us on Twitter, we're believers in the Mary Poppins School of Communications. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We want to make it easy for average residents to understand what the Council does. We're demystifying our work and the people who do it. Remember, the D.C. Council is just like your workplace, except with a dais. On the show, we'll try to keep things light, offbeat, informal, and interesting. You'll learn about policy, learn about people, learn about history, and learn about the institution. Now, without any further ado, let me introduce our guest this time, who is at-large council member Robert White. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks so much for coming. Thanks for being generous with your time. Um, when I research these uh, interviews, particularly these first interviews, they're kind of biographical. Uh, it, I have to admit, my cheat sheet is Wikipedia. And you have a stunning Wikipedia page. And I don't know if, if, if you have anything to do with that, but first I just have to give you a huge thumbs up on the Wikipedia page. I appreciate it. I don't know where it uh, came from. I just realized one day that the one existed and said, Mama, I made it. Yeah, because, man, that thing <laughs> is good. I mean, there's a lot of good detail there. Um, one of the details there is that you're a, a native Washingtonian. Yes. That, yes. that is uh, quite the honor. It is. And fifth generation, not, uh, not too, too many of us uh, who, who can say that, but, uh, but it is an honor. Yeah, it, and it's the one thing you can earn. No, no amount of money or power will get you uh, back to being a native Washingtonian if you that, were born someplace right. else. And, but back in the day, it, it wasn't the same badge of honor it was uh, it, it is now. But uh, but I think we all have uh, always worn it proudly. Yeah, it was my my first uh, days in the city about twenty years ago. Whenever people said native Washingtonian, I'd roll my eyes. And it occurred to me the other day that my daughter's a native Washingtonian. So, like, I couldn't become one, but I could make one. That's right. So I generated my own native Washingtonian. That's how I got over that hump. Um, now, uh, this, this is not much of a transition here, but uh, I know you had, early in life you had a really bad car crash. That's that, right. That you weren't supposed to survive. That, that's right. Um, I was eight years old. It was uh, very unfortunately about a month after my uh, mom had passed away from breast cancer. And I right. uh, was on the way to school one morning when a, uh, a tractor trailer hit a, uh, a car on the opposite side of the road. That car hit the median, flipped up in the air, landed on top of ours, and uh, landed at an angle uh, on my head. It cracked my skull open, uh, collapsed the, the roof of my mouth. I actually recently went to the dentist and for the first time ever saw an x-ray with the wires on my mouth and, and below my eye. 
Uh, so it's a cool story now, but uh, when you're going through it, uh, or when you're when you're a kid who has no front teeth, it's not the most fun thing in the world. Yeah, that's terrifying. That's terrifying just to hear about. Where where did it happen exactly? It happened on uh, New New Hampshire Avenue, and uh, right uh, the truck was uh, getting off of 495. There used to be a Bob's Big Boy uh, there, and uh, so I was uh, I was flown to. Um, I can't remember if it was Georgetown Hospital or Children's, uh, but then I was transferred to the other hospital for uh, for several more weeks and uh, uh, spent uh, some serious time uh, un- unconscious in ICU. Uh, but but honestly, I, f- I always feel a lot uh, more sorry for my dad than for me because that, that's a call that no parent ever wants to receive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can't even imagine. Uh, now, I don't know. Do you know Sekou Biddle, former I, council member? I, I do. I do, do. Do you guys compare scar notes? We, we don't. You know, we, 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 we give each other a respectful nod when uh, when we see each other. But uh, it, it's interesting. A number of people who've had brain surgery or who know someone uh, who's had brain surgery ask me about my scar. And uh, the funny thing, if you dig through old pictures of me, one thing you'll realize is I always had a lot of hair. It's funny because I'm bald now, mm-hmm. but um, insecurity from having a, uh, a scar on my head where hair didn't grow uh, prompted me to grow an afro that was almost a foot tall. Uh, and after the afro, I wore cornrows. After the cornrows, I wore uh, dreadlocks and uh, so on and so forth and, until uh, nature took its course. And uh, now <laughs> now the car, scar is just there, but I actually love it now. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, I mean, what are the odds that there's a limited number of council members since home rule and the two of you guys would have a full crosshead scar? That's right. It's from a pool cue. Yeah. I'll, I'll public from, debate whose who's story is cooler. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, you know, I put out trivia on the, the Twitter feed is one of the things I do. So I keep track of little weird things like that. And that's uh, definitely a question to hit people with. Um, I also noticed in looking at your background that you uh, studied abroad. Yes. And I, I studied in France, and it was oh. the best decision I ever made, pretty much. And I see that you were at Oxford, but also in Africa, in the Gambia. That, that's right. Talk my, a bit about that. It was uh, absolutely two of the most incredible experiences of my life. I'd never uh, been abroad before. My first time leaving the country was when I studied in the Gambia, West Africa. I was there uh, for, I can't remember if it was six or nine weeks uh, cultural immersion uh, experience, did language classes, traveled up country, uh, just really one of the, the biggest uh, growth opportunities for me in my life. And uh, the, so I did that uh, the summer of my uh, junior year of, uh, of college. And then the uh, next semester, I went to study abroad at Oxford University at New College. And, uh, and really, I mean, to, 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 to be at a university where many parts of the university started in the 14 and 1500s uh, will really change your perspective uh, on, on life and on academics, especially coming from the U.S., which in comparison is, is, is still a baby. Uh, but to, to be around so many people from so many different backgrounds and to have uh, so much uh, immersion experience in other cultures and other countries, uh, really just, I think, accelerated my growth and my, my thirst for knowledge. Yeah, it's it's something when you're over in Europe and, and everything is so old that here you can go into an antique store and there's a Flintstones uh, lunchbox. <laughs> That's right. And it's an antique, whereas there you're just walking down the street and the, the bar on the corner has been there since 1300. And That's right. Chaucer, you know, went for drinks there. It, it puts life in perspective about how, how small of amount of time that you uh, you occupy this space. Yeah, people would always say, "Oh, your your country is so young; it's it's still learning." And I was would get mad, you know. It, yes. but, but 
when you think about it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, now, how did you end up in the Gambia of all the, the 200 countries? How did you pick uh, that particular African nation? My, uh, my college, St. Mary's College of Maryland, uh, had a, an ongoing program to the Gambia. And it, it was something that I certainly was naturally interested in. Uh, but also the, the president of the school at the time, Maggie O'Brien, basically told me I had no choice but to participate in this program. Uh, and I was happy to, to do it, and the school supported me financially and helping me to figure out uh, how to do it. So uh, before I uh, began preparing to, to travel to the Gambia, I couldn't have pointed it out on a map because it, it is such a small country, really tucked uh, in, in the middle of Senegal. Uh, but once I got there, I realized what a beautiful uh, country it was, uh, predominantly Muslim country with a, a, a small but growing number of Christians. And interestingly, I traveled there right after 9-11 and, and could not help but be struck by how well uh, the Muslim and uh, Christian residents really not only got along, but shared in each other's uh, religious practices and, and customs. And it, it was a beautiful thing to see. How did the Gambia get its the? I'd like the Johns Hopkins University. <laughs> you get okay. in trouble if you don't say the the. Maybe just prestige. I, I don't know where, where the the came from. All I know is that it's there, and so I always include it in the name of the country. Absolutely. Are you still in touch with anybody over there or like ever get back since then? I haven't gotten back. I still plan to go. hope to uh, take my wife and, and daughter. Um, there was actually a, a film crew that followed us, the uh, group that I went with. And uh, uh, Michael, one of the gentlemen from the film crew, uh, turns out as a D.C. resident, uh, found my council uh, email address and remembers me saying in the interviews uh, that I had an interest in politics. And so he shot me a note recently uh, just to say, you know, congratulations on, on staying down the, the path and uh, sent me a picture I had forgotten about with one of the uh, uh, descendants of uh, Kunta Kinte's family. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, speaking of travels abroad, um, you worked in Montgomery County for a while. Yes. It's sort of <laughs> a deviation from your, your districtness. Like yeah, you, right. you had me on the Oxford, you had me on the Gambia. And I grew up in Montgomery County, so I have nothing against Montgomery County. But yes. what, what pulled you out of the district before you jumped back in? I, um, when, I, when I graduated from law school, I uh, lived in Ward 7 and actually is now Ward 8. It's uh, changed after the census. Uh, but 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 I got a job clerking, and uh, when you're a young lawyer clerking or, or working for a judge for a one or two year period is is really one of the best things you can do for your career. One of the best uh, learning opportunities. And uh, Montgomery County District Court was willing to take a chance on uh, me, and so I was uh, more than happy to to head out there. And I, I learned a lot from the judges there. Uh, but when when my clerkship ended, I I came back to D.C. and and got right back into the mix. Yeah, and you um, are one of the uh, couple of council members who who got a start in Eleanor Holmes Norton's office. That's right. Yeah, uh, that that office will will will, will kill you or grow you. Uh, <laughs> I, I joke. I call it the proving ground. But um, uh, Eleanor Norton is somebody uh, for whom I have tremendous. Uh, respect, and I, I cannot imagine that there would be a better place to really refine your understanding of of government. 
and and also uh, ethics as an elected official then in her office i uh, i still do things today as an elected official that i know wouldn't have even come to mind had i not had the opportunity to to work for her i was with her for uh, for about five years i had hair when i started and i had none when i left gotcha now give me an example of something like that something that you picked up and you do now that wouldn't have occurred to you uh uh, without your time there. Well, one of the things uh, Congresswoman Norton is particularly good about is is, is bringing uh, various parties together in the same room and, and essentially making them uh, work out kinks or, or work out details. And, uh, and that, that's something that I've always respected and really uh, something that I uh, took a note uh, from, from her. Uh, but the other thing that she did that as a staffer could be frustrating, but as an elected official is very beneficial, especially for the people you represent, is to always look for a way around the no. Uh, the, the first answer you will usually get from government, even if you're an elected official, is no. And your job as an elected official is to find a path through. And uh, I was always impressed at how, uh, how much the congresswoman could find ways through a no. And so I always challenge myself and challenge my staff uh, with, that same, uh, with that same goal. Yeah. I have to admit, one of my guilty pleasures if I'm having a bad day is I pull up the Eleanor Holmes Norton, I will not yield yes. a 30 second clip. Yes. And that just gets me uh, ready for the rest of the day. Yeah. And that's uh, one, one of the things I, I like is that what you see in that clip and other clips of her is uh, is not not show for the camera. It's really the passion that uh, that she brings to the job. Yeah. She couldn't have scripted that. Th- that's right. That's right. Now, as someone who is has gone from the staffer role to the staff E uh, role, how do you think that's informed your uh, how you how you do the job? I, I think that uh, has been very healthy for me. Um, one of the things I can't control is the pace uh, that comes with being in the legislative branch, whether you're the official or the staffer, the, the, the pace is really just out of this world and it is constant. But as a staffer, with, with, with Norton, as focused as she was on outcomes, uh, one of the things that I think uh, she didn't do sometimes was a pat on the back for staff. And so I try to pat my staff on the back every once in a while and say, okay, I know I've been pushing you hard and I'm actually gonna keep pushing you hard, but I want you to know that you did a good job yesterday. Uh, and so I at least try to be conscious of that. And uh, I also challenge myself uh, to to find uh, small uh, ways to to give my staff a little bit of flexibility during the very rare times where the council is not in session, uh, just out of respect for uh, the fact that people have to be able to get things done in in real life and uh, also recuperate. Because if they don't recuperate, then they can't work as hard for the residents. Yep. That's definitely true. And you anticipated my next question was not just how being a staffer makes you a better council member, but how it makes you a better uh, to your fellow staffers. Um, yes, they, I, I, I tried. But it, it, some of that also is uh, natural uh, upbringing. I, I believe that you have to be respectful of everybody, uh, whether it's the, the person who comes to collect the trash or, or the person handling your legislative agenda uh, you, you, or the mayor. You, you treat them all with respect. Uh, and that is something that I personally try to bring to, to everything that I do. Yeah. I mean, people are mirrors. Generally, what you give them is what you're going to get back. So. That's right. uh, you have to lead from a, a place of uh, principle and good manners and 
cross your fingers. That's right. And, and we could use a lot more of that in politics. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I think we're so divisive uh, on, it seems, everything. Uh, but when you talk to people, as people, uh, you realize that, that we really have more in common than we have uh, uh, in opposition or different. And, uh, and so if you approach people with respect, uh, generally they're a lot more willing to listen to your point of view and uh, you, you can generally reach a better outcome. Now let's talk about another of your uh, former employers who also runs a bit of a star factory, uh, Carl Racine. Um, talk about your time there. It was a brand new elected role, brand new office. You were in a brand new role. How, how was that to kind of create a legislative role that hadn't existed? I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to create a, a, a part of the office of the attorney general that didn't previously exist. Uh, but doing that in a time where the agency has its first elected uh, leader, the first elected uh, attorney general, is uh, it is is a task that was very daunting uh, and and very stressful, uh, but but I really enjoyed it. And I will, I uh, think for the, the rest of my days, value having had the opportunity uh, to work for Attorney General Racine because th- this is a guy who had managed um, one of the largest law firms uh, in the area. And, um, and, and my thought was that somebody who'd risen to such ranks really had to be so no-nonsense as to be unrelatable. But what I found is that he had an ability to be kind and relatable, but also get his agenda done uh, pretty flawlessly. And so it challenged me to, to think about uh, how I would operate as an elected official and challenged me to say, well, you can get your agenda done and you can be hard charging, uh, but you can still make sure that people, including your staff, uh, know that you are approachable and that you want to work with them and respect the work that you do. And so uh, having worked for the attorney general, uh, I think it, it really grew me as a professional and, and helped me in many, many ways uh, be a better elected official than I would have been. Gotcha. How, how would you, uh, this may not be a fair question, how would you compare and contrast uh, uh, Congresswoman Norton and, and uh, Attorney General Racine as employers? I, I, I would say, I, personally, I needed them both. Uh, I needed uh, two very different examples of, of uh, work styles and styles of leadership, uh, particularly because both styles were able to, to get things done uh, and neither took no for an answer. And so I, I would say that um, with, uh, with Congresswoman Norton, uh, I, I was always nervous before I went to brief her on an issue about what I might be missing because she was going to ask me uh, some aspect, some detail that had not even, not only did I not know the answer, I didn't even think to look for the answer. And it was inevitable. Uh, and there would be no smile when she did it. Uh, with Attorney General Racine, uh, he would ask me about some detail but he would smile as he said it. And uh, and at least, uh, even though I knew I had to go back and uh, do a little bit more research, uh, I kind of felt differently uh, in one circumstance than, than the other. But uh, but I, I I have enormous, enormous respect for uh, for both of them. Yeah, something I've, I've seen in, in talking to elected officials is every conversation feels like a performance oversight hearing. That, that you're, you're getting drilled on the details. And, and I know as a staffer, a lot of times, I an issue I've been working on super hard, 
I'll go to, to one of the elected officials with it. They'll ask me questions I haven't even thought of. Like you were saying with Congresswoman Norton, like, you know how busy they are and they're covering a million issues and you're covering five and they still manage to find the one thing you didn't study up on. And they just have these minds that are, are uh, magnificent the way they can nail you on weaknesses and figure out the the flaw. That is right. But what one thing that uh, being a staffer helped me to understand is that uh, it sometimes is my distance from the details of an issue that helped me see uh, more clearly across it. And so my staff sometimes, if if there's a, a, a detail that I need that they haven't thought of, I let them know it's, it's, it's not that I'm uh, necessarily smarter than you. It's just that my perspective is different because I'm not as bogged down in the details as, as you are. Um, and uh, but but that's one thing that you have to have as an elected official is the ability to uh, to see through the weeds and to see through the nose uh, and to really get to where you know you you have to get to. Yep. Another question uh, about your time in uh, Attorney General Racine's office is I think you had a uh, someone who reported to you in that office who you've uh, come to find as a colleague in That's your right. subsequent employment. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? So uh, uh, Council Member, Ward 8 Council Member Treyon White technically worked for me. I was technically his supervisor, uh, but I always uh, joke, and, and it's not really a joke, but uh, I don't know who worked for who. Uh, but um, the, the the thing that uh, I really appreciate having had the opportunity to, to work with Treyon in that capacity is that uh, I understood very clearly why Attorney General Racine wanted uh, Treyon White on board, and I wanted to make sure I gave him the room to execute. Uh, one of the strengths that Councilmember Treyon White has is that he reaches a larger number of people who are not naturally connected to the political process than any other elected official in this city, and, and frankly, uh, any other elected official that I know of. And, uh, and those are the people that we really need to, to buy into government, to engage with government, to help us uh, serve them better and to do our jobs better. And uh, so I think uh, Councilmember Treyon White did that very well, and, and, and I was honored to work with him. Yeah, he is um, definitely uh, comes across totally differently than the other council members. And even in the I interviewed him a couple uh, weeks ago. And it just was a totally different interview than it had been with any of the other council members. Yeah, yes, he uh, he he doesn't um, let the role define him. He defines the role, and uh, and and I like that. Yeah. Um, question I meant to ask earlier was uh, I, I like looking at things that prep people to be good council members. And you, if I'm correct, have a law degree. Yes. Do you think that how, how does that help you? Do you do you find that the other council members with a law degree think in a similar rigorous way that you think about issues or do you think it's just really kind of lost in the different backgrounds that the different council members have? I, I think um, smart people are smart people regardless of degrees. Uh, for me personally, uh, having gone to law school and gotten a law degree has helped me uh, in my ability to be more analytical, to be more probative, and to really challenge uh, notions of the law. There have been times where I've disagreed with our general counsel's office, and in some of those times I've been right. And it's only because I, I knew sometimes what to look for or, or where to challenge uh, their, uh, their conclusions. And so certainly I think it has helped me to, to be a better legislator. Now, other than the, the couple of uh, folks you've worked with, are there any other role models that you look to in terms of how you're going to be either as a person or, or in the elected role? Um, I look to my, my dad. Uh, my, my dad um, 
is is present and available for anything that anyone needs, uh, whether he knows you or not. And uh, I am honestly uh, so proud of my dad and everything that he does. And I always want him to be as proud of me as I am of him. And so I would say that my my dad is is my biggest living role model. Um, a historic uh, role model that I have is Frederick Douglass, and I have his picture in my office uh, because in a time following my car accident, I, I really, really slipped in school, hadn't been uh, out of school in the hospital for so long uh, that I started failing school year after year. And I read uh, after my eighth grade graduation, uh, this book, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass that my godmother had uh, given to me. And one of the things that I realized in reading his narrative is that if this man could be born a slave and not allowed to read and become one of the greatest orators that the the world uh, has ever seen and one of the greatest thinkers uh, that this country has known, that there was no excuse for me having been in some car accident uh, to not achieve whatever my greatest potential was. Yeah, and that, there's one thing. There's one thing to say that. It's another thing to to do it. That's right. I mean, it's it's you can motivate yourself all you want, but you still have to follow through, and that's that's right. That's that's a daily challenge, yeah. and that's uh, that's just discipline. The 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 one thing that I will say, uh, book smarts is not my natural thing. I don't test particularly well. I I, I get concepts, but I don't test particularly well. Uh, what what I do have is a lot of discipline. I I can identify where I want to go, I will identify how to get there, and I will make sure that every single day I execute uh, in a way that's going to get me there. And in that way, even if I fall short, I should be okay some way, somehow. Now, as, as someone who doesn't test well, does that inform how you think our school should be judging our students? Oh, absolutely. Um, many students uh, that are plenty capable don't test well. Uh, one of the, I was uh, also a, a philosophy major, and uh, Plato and the Republic had this notion that at early ages we should determine uh, what kids should essentially go be farmhands and which should uh, go on to be scholars and to be in, in, in the upper class. And I always thought, well, what, what would that have meant for my life? Uh, somebody who I think I had plenty of potential, uh, but certainly I would have been a farmhand uh, under that philosophy. And uh, as I study philosophy, uh, one of my friends, Zach, who is also now a DC resident, he was he was the smartest guy in our class. And, and this guy could could recite anything. He could explain any philosophical uh, idea, but he could not write a good paper. And uh, and so different students learn differently. And I think that uh, our schools uh, really have to. Um, to have a way to understand that. I know certainly for most of my teachers prior to my junior year in high school, uh, many of them saw me as a throwaway. Uh, they didn't think that I would uh, make it through high school, much less be successful in life. And I think that's because they looked uh, strictly at test scores and didn't really have other ways to assess students. So I personally feel very strongly uh, that our school testing matters uh, to some extent, but we have to have different ways of teaching students and we have to have different methods of assessing them. Yeah, it's interesting in doing these conversations with council members. There's a fair number of late bloomers and folks who weren't initially A students at school. I I don't quite have it. I should do a little chart and break it down. But Kenya McDuffie, I think he he went the longest. Uh, He was the latest bloomer, I think. Yeah, yeah. He he was the, the second to last I did and definitely was someone who took sort of a long and winding route. But uh, it goes to show you that never judge a person because you don't know who they're going to be. I mean, you shouldn't judge them regardless, but above and beyond that, you never know that your mailman is going to end up being a council member. That's exactly In the case of uh, Councilmember McDuffie. Um, 
Well, we're uh, coming towards the end of our time. We have a couple of features that we do with all the council members just to kind of shake things up, uh, kind of icebreakers, even though we're already a half hour into the conversation. <laughs> but, yeah, the theory is the same. Um, so as you may remember, James Lipton from inside the actor's studio, in an homage to Bernard Pivot of the seminal program Apostrophe, would ask all guests the same 10 thought-provoking questions. I will not be asking those questions. Instead, please rank in order of preference for you these five items. Cake, candy, cookies, ice cream, and pie. Oh, this is very easy. Uh, candy, ice cream, cookies, cake, pie. That's, that's pretty close to me. That's pretty, I'm an I'm a, I'm a ice cream, candy, cookies, cake, pie guy it's, it's kind of like a myers-briggs of dessert you know it, it's uh you learn interesting things about how people answer the people who ask questions like i can't possibly do this because there's subcategories yes and then some people are just like sure here you go i got my answers so um so anyway so thank you for indulging me in that put whiskey on there next time though oh yeah that's that's a whole different that's a, for a whole different program <laughs> Uh, the other two icebreakers we're doing, that's, which have gone terribly, um, is do you do any impressions? I, I'm sure I do, uh, but pro- not not well enough that I can think of any. Right, and, and certainly not on the radio. So, certainly not. <laughs> yeah, that's that's I, I think uh, the, the reason this doesn't work so well. Uh, but I'm going to keep trying, and one of these days, one of you is going to have an impression, and I'm going to be grateful. Well, I have a I have a Phil Mendelson impression. Are you ready? Sure. I disagree. There wow, that's how he starts most sentences. At least when he's talking to me, right? But it's usually a principled <laughs> disagreement. No, I, I, I'm I, just I, I like the chairman a lot. Um, and then the other, uh, the other question is: uh, Is there anything in life that you can't live without? Anything irrational, small, crazy thing that, like, if someone took it out of your life, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself? Uh, music, and uh, you know, of, co- of course, my wife and my daughter, but. Uh, but also music. Uh, I, I listen to music all the time, all, all types of music, uh, sing in the car. Uh, I, I tell people I like to sing, but I'm not a singer. Um, and uh, so I, I couldn't live without music. Do you have a Desert Island song, if you had to listen to one song and repeat for the rest of your life? I've, I've tried so many times to figure out what that one song would be. And, and so, no, I, I can't go to the Desert Island with one song. I, I need a, probably a couple thousand. It's normally easier to think about the one song you would not want to have played permanently (laughs) while you were in a prison cell somewhere. Uh, uh, Well, unfortunately, the time went super quickly, but but our half hour is up. Um, Thanks again for joining us, listeners. Tune in again next time. We're at DC Radio, which you can listen to at 96.3 on your HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. Councilmember White, thank you so much for coming and uh, indulging us and uh, being generous with your time. I appreciate the opportunity. It's good talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.